This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our guests today are Randy Street and Alan Foster, uh, and they have just written a book called Power Score. We are going to talk to them about that today. Uh, Randy, Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's our pleasure. It's great to be here. Great. Randy, I'd probably start with the first question with you. Uh, you describe Power Score as a, as a grand united theory of leadership boiled down to a single number. What exactly does that mean? So we've been on a journey for the last 20 years as a firm and as individuals uh, thinking about leadership. Um, boards and CEOs would call us and say, hey, we're, we're about to make a big leadership change or a decision of some sort, and we need help to figure out how do we get the right people. So our, our day jobs have been interviewing CEO candidates and uh, senior leaders for organizations of all different shapes and sizes. Uh, and each interview has been a five-hour interview or so, and then 15 hours of analysis around that. Uh, and over the course of the last 20 years, we've, we've interviewed over 15,000 people. And it occurred to us, there's, there's probably something to learn from that in terms of what, what do successful leaders really do. Uh, and over the last five years, we've been digging deep into that data to understand it. And what we have found is there are, in fact, uh, three factors that drive success in leadership, and we call it the grand unified theory, uh, very much like uh, the way scientists describe the universe. So scientists have been looking to figure out, you know, what is the grand unified theory of how the universe, universe works, and we figured if they can describe the universe, surely we can describe leadership. And in fact, we've got these three factors that describe what success looks like. Absolutely. So I'll turn to Alan to ask exactly what the power score is and how it's calculated. And how did you come up with the concept? What kind of research did you put into it? Yes, so power score, power is really an acronym. The, the P stands for priorities, the W stands for who, and the R stands for relationships. And uh, as part of the 15,000 uh, executive interviews that we've done over the last 20 years, we, we got a phone call about uh, five years ago from Professor Steve Kaplan and a colleague of his at the University of Chicago. He said, aren't you sitting on what's probably the world's most valuable database of leadership? I've got an army of PhDs uh, who I'd love to pour over it, code it, and analyze the heck out of it. I bet we could learn something. Um, are you up for that? And we said, sure. And, uh, and, and so we did. And so th they've been kicking the tires on, on what really makes the difference. And we actually had a whole different theory of leadership when we started writing the book. But it, the, data, it, the data didn't uh, match it. It didn't pan out. So we, we really had to say, like, what do leaders do differently? And what we found is they, they all go about accomplishing three things. They set the right priorities. They get the right people in the right roles, the right who, the W. And then they make the relationships work, um, the, the, the R for relationships. And so what we do with, our, with, with the teams and the executives we work with is to say, on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, to what extent do you have the right priorities? Give yourself a score out of 10. To what extent do you have the right who, the right people in the right roles, score out of 10? And to what extent do the relationships work? Again, a score out of 10. And you've got three numbers out of 10. Multiply them together, and you've got yourself a score out of 1,000. 
And that's the score we've been calculating with uh, thousands of executives to find out to what extent do they run at full power, power being priorities, who, and relationships. And what have you found so far of, uh, uh, when you talk to uh, executives? Do you find that of all the three variables that make up the power acronym, uh, the executives are good at all three, or are there some that are they are better at than others? So all three matter. It's, it's something like a triathlon. If, if you can't swim, you're not going to win the triathlon. And the same is true with the power score, P, W, and R. You have to be able to do all three. And most leaders only do one or maybe two of those really well. Uh, very few actually think to do all three, much less are really good at all three. Uh, but the statistics are amazing. Those who do all three well are easily twice as successful as the average leader, and they're 20 times more successful than leaders who don't do any of those three things. Which of the three, which is the easiest for most leaders to manage? And which element of those three do they have the most trouble with? So the easiest is definitely the R, relationships. So most leadership theories focus on behaviors and traits and how you should show up as a leader. And that's all very important in leadership, of course. Uh, and so about half, 47% of the leaders in our data set were reasonably good at building the, the relationships that make a team function. On the flip side, uh, the hardest one is the W, the who, which is hiring the right people, uh, removing people, shifting people around on your team to make sure you've got the right people matched to the right priorities. Only 14% of leaders were excellent at that, which means 86% of all leaders are completely ignoring one of the most important factors of being a successful leader, which is getting that who question right. It's funny, and uh, uh, I was uh, at a conference last week with uh, about 150 CEOs, and we were going through, do you have the right priorities, the right who, the right relationships? And at the end, I said, okay, a show of hands, if you think about your score in each of those dimensions, the, the score you've given yourself, which is the lowest? Which is pulling your overall score down the most? And show of hands, about 80% of the audience put up their hand for the who, as in like, they struggle the most with getting the right people in the right roles. Interesting. I'll, I'll come back to the who, but let's let's start with the, with the priorities. Uh, Alan, is, are priorities the same as goals? Uh, what's the difference? Well, uh, it, it's funny. We, we we had one client, and and I said I said to the uh, chief operating officer, um, to what extent do you have the right priorities? He said, absolutely, we do. We 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 set goals. And I said, well, how many do you have? And he said, well, I have 164. <laughs> and, and, and I said, well, you know, th that must keep you quite busy. He goes, yes, we're a very inclusive culture. We're very bottom up. We like people to set their own goals. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a high achieving environment, but they had no focus at all. And so we find the best leaders are very good at setting priorities, which actually means saying no to things. Like it's looking at all your potential goals and saying, which are the three, four or five that really matter? Goals really are what needs to happen, and that's great, but they don't really give you a sense for uh, which ones actually tie back to your mission and why, th why they're important or how they relate to one another. So you can have 164 goals, no sense of priority, a lot of diffused focus through the organization. So how do you think leaders can become better at setting priorities? How did this leader go, go about it? So we, uh, you can obviously hire consultants for... Uh, 
um, millions of dollars, and I'm sure they'll come up with a, a, a great presentation. We, we have a slightly simpler way. We, we encourage leaders and leadership teams to write what we call a scorecard, which is to say, given the mission and vision of what you're trying to do, what are the five priorities? And how do you talk about them in terms of, like, uh, if you fast forward two or three years and you're thrilled with what you've got done, what will you have delivered? And it forces people to talk in numbers. It forces people to, to have trade-offs. And then we get a, a CEO, if they've done that, to share that with their leadership team. And then we find everyone has a different point of view. And then you just lock the door and you don't let them out until they've actually had some of these tough conversations about what are we not going to do versus just what we are going to do. How, how do you think priorities are linked with purpose? And can you give any examples of leaders who are able to tie their priorities to the reason why the organization exists? We've been working with a, a Tulga one day who uh, is using a lot of his thinking around the checklist manifesto uh, to apply to um, some of the most complex diseases and healthcare, healthcare issues. And uh, he, when we very first spoke to him, he said, we said, like, why do you exist? And he said, well, I am trying to save harm or suffering from more than a million lives over the next three years. And he's written about that, and he has founded a, a laboratory, an innovation lab called Ariadne Labs. And what we find is it's like putting up a beacon into the sky, like the bat signal, and, and, and surgeons and medics and professionals flock from all over the world um, because his, his mission uh, just resonates with them. Um, and then he then goes from that to say, what are his three to five priorities? But it all links back from that sense of purpose, his, his mission of what he's trying to do. Um, how can you uh, decide if your team's priorities are clear and, and effective? Mm. So it's one thing to think you've got the right priorities, but then to make sure that you transmit them through the organization is, is uh, another challenge. I had a client recently share with me that he, he had a senior team get together and think through priorities, and they all patted each other on the back and said, oh, we've got our priorities, we all agree. And then they had a conversation with the next level down in the organization, and there was a little more debate. You know, what really are our priorities? I'm not sure. Are we aligned here? And then they took the conversation to the next level down, and that group of people basically said, what priorities? <laughs> uh, so there's definitely a challenge in organizations as you go through to create clarity. And the first thing that you need to do is limit yourself to that, that three to five. You know, five really is the absolute limit of priorities that that we as humans can process and remember. Uh, and the second piece is communication. So just constantly communicating these are the five things. Whenever something comes up that's outside of those priorities, calling it out, saying, you know what, that's interesting, that might even be important, we should look at that, but not now, it's not part of our priorities. Uh, I had a client say, another client say, whenever someone comes to her with something that's off the list, she says, make me care. If you can show me how that connects to and supports one of our five priorities, then we should think about doing it. But if you can't, we're not going to do it. We're not going to put resources behind it. So it's a combination of shortening the list from 164 down to five and then communicating it constantly throughout the organization. Got it. So now let's come to the really difficult part of the, the power equation, which is the who part. Mm. How, how can a leader select the right people for her or his team and make sure that they are focused on the right priorities? Mm -hmm. 
Well, you've actually begun to answer the question right there with that second piece, which is make sure they're focused on the right priorities. So uh, the first mistake leaders make when it comes to hiring and thinking about their team is they haven't even thought about their priorities in the first place. Assuming you actually have thought about your priorities, the next question should not be how do we accomplish these priorities, but rather who should accomplish these priorities, which is where the, the next big mistake comes. Most leaders don't think that. They think about the what questions and the how questions. What do we need to do? How do we need to do it? Rather than who do we need on the team to do it? Uh, so question two is all about that who. Once you understand the priority, who do we need on the team to accomplish it? From there, it's about following a, a structured process. Uh, most leaders don't because they're not asking the right question in the first place. Uh, and because they're distracted with all of the noise and you know, the meetings and the conference calls and the 200 emails a day and all the other things coming along. They don't put the actual energy into hiring the right people, thinking about mapping their team to the right priorities. And one of the things I found very interesting is you write in your book that this is the aspect of management that gives leaders the most heartburn. Uh, how, how can leaders become better at selecting the right people? So it, it probably begins by acknowledging what are all the mistakes that they typically make. And on average, uh, nearly all the research proves that leaders are making mistakes about 50% of the time. So half the time, toss of a coin, they're getting it wrong. Uh, and they're using just a lot of um, ill-informed techniques. We call them... Uh, uh, voodoo hiring uh, uh, tricks and uh, for example uh, should I be interviewing someone who is British and balding and has a slightly quirky <laughs> sense of humor I'll probably think you know what they're pretty smart I, I really like I can't put my finger on it but I really like that guy and we we tend to project ourselves onto the people that we see and yet we don't realize we have all these unconscious biases so the the very first part before you even get to like asking the correct questions is to acknowledge what are the mistakes that you're making right now? But how do you go about removing underperformers and getting A players on your team? How, how, how would you do that? So first thing is understanding where you've got A, B, and C players if you want to use a sort of a classification system of your team. And that goes back to the priorities. Alan mentioned a little earlier a tool that we call a scorecard, which basically just documents your priorities, your mission, and then the key priorities that you're pursuing. Uh, and the best leaders actually take some time, maybe once a quarter, sit down, look at the priorities, map the team against them, and ask the question, how comfortable am I that these people are going to accomplish these things? And if you have any doubt in your mind, if, there's a, if, if you think, well, maybe it's 50-50, that's not very good. You're looking for a much higher degree of confidence, a 90% or even 100% degree of confidence that those people will accomplish those priorities. I, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the, our client, um, Panos, mm -hmm. who, uh, who, who took Randy's advice and did exactly that. And, and he, uh, he emailed us uh, about a year and a half ago and said, uh, you know what, I've been following your advice. And we were like, well, what advice would that be? We can't remember. And he said, well, every quarter I sit down and I map out who's my team. If I was only allowed to have 50% of my people, who's on my boat? And then he goes, okay, now if I was allowed 75% of people, who would I add to the team? Then he goes to 85%. And then at 85%, he goes, 
who have I not, who's not on this team? Who's not on this boat? And he goes, at that point, I need to look in the mirror and ask myself some pretty tough questions about whether or not these are the right people moving forward and to make some tough decisions. Do you have any examples of leaders who do a really good job of managing the who? And I would love to know what they do differently than other leaders. So from a, a process perspective, uh, the best leaders that we work with start by thinking about their team against the priorities. Uh, the second thing is they do remove the weaker people. And in some cases, that means moving them to a different place in the company or the organization. Uh, and then third, they get very aggressive about hiring. Um, Kristen Russell comes to mind. She is the uh, former uh, head of IT in the state of Colorado, and she had some big jobs at uh, Oracle, I believe, and a couple yep. of big, uh, big IT shops. She considers herself a chief recruiting officer. She says, you know, I may be a CIO, but my real job is CRO, chief recruiting officer. And she's constantly on the hunt for great talent, constantly sourcing interesting people that she may be able to bring into her organization or maybe refer to other people uh, within the organization or other organizations for that matter. Um, and then she follows a structured process to actually hire those people as well, which is the other piece of the magic. So it's, it's understanding that you need to have these people. It's putting that chief recruiter hat on at all times and then following a structured process to, to hire them against the priorities. It, 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 it's funny, when we did the analysis of, if you look at every single executive we've ever interviewed and met, and we look at what's the number one risk or regret of that, of that executive, the thing they wish they'd done differently, we, by far the number one is, I wish I had moved faster on the people I deep down knew weren't the right people on the team. But we feel conflicted, we feel like, well, Maybe it's my fault they're not performing. Maybe I should give them one more chance. Maybe it will look bad. It will look bad on me. And so they, we're very good at justifying why tomorrow we'll probably be a different person. We'll take action. But just for the just for the moment, let's just keep the team as it is. Um, I wonder if you could, since you talked about recruiting, uh, uh, discuss a little bit about the interview process mm -hmm. and what are some of the most common errors you find. The voodoo uh, hiring. The voodoo errors. hiring <laughs> that people make. And, and, and how can you eliminate those errors from the, from the interview process? Sure. So I'll, we can maybe banter back oh, and yeah. forth on this because this is, this is plenty of them. <laughs> rich territory. One that comes to mind uh, that I think is very, very common is the hypothetical question. Uh, we call it the fortune teller. Mukul, what would you do if you joined our team, which right now is a little dysfunctional? How would you fix it? It's, it's a forward-looking question, and the problem is you get uh, hypothetical answers. So if you were to ask me, you know, Randy, um, I understand that you, you followed the, uh, the space shuttle and the Apollo program when you were a kid. How would you get to the moon? I could actually answer that question. I know how to get to the moon, how to get to the moon but I couldn't get you to the moon. <laughs> uh, and the same is true here. You could, based on your education, based on examples you've seen, you could make things up. And unfortunately, that's not really a predictor of how somebody will behave. Their past performance is a predictor, but not some projection of the future. So don't ask hypothetical questions. What's another good one, Alan? Uh, another, an another voodoo technique that we see is um, what we call the, the suitor. And this is when you know you've got a good candidate in front of you, 
and you feel immense pressure to try and impress them and to somehow make them join your company, so you talk and you tell them how great it is and why you joined and you're, you're just trying to sell them. And then you get to the end of 40 minutes and you've forgotten to ask them any questions, any difficult, and you're like, well, I, I quite like them, but I probably should have got a bit deeper. Um, and, and, and we find that all too often happens. And again, we're trying to get the data to understand what's this person really about and does that mean they're gonna be able to accomplish my priorities or not? One last one to mention, it's what Alan mentioned about that strange attraction he has to the balding men when he's like balding British men. I think they're gonna be really good in the job. We tend to be art critics. You, know, you, you see the, the painting on the wall, you like it for some reason, you can't really tell why, it's just something you like and so you end up hiring that person. Uh, it could be a common interest or a common background or something, and you end up hiring people not based on what they're able to do for you and with your team, but based on some gut feel that's not substantiated by any real data. I had a client last week and, and I said, well, why did you give the offer to the CFO? And, and, and the CEO said to me, he said, he was reassuringly tall. <laughs> that may be true, but that's not the same person who can close the books on time, execute on the M&A, or the things you actually need them to get done. So let, let's turn now to the R part of the, of, of, of the power uh, score. Uh, how, how can leaders develop relationships uh, that actually deliver results, as you write in your book? Yeah, that's right. Um, we, we, we find that, uh, um, I don't know about your calendar, but mine is full of meetings. And it, it always has been, and they seem to be getting more frequent and longer. And um, we find that this is true across, across uh, America and around the world. Uh, people are just putting stuff into my calendar. And what we're finding is often the wrong people are coming together at the wrong time to talk about the wrong things in an unstructured way. And you know, meetings lack healthy conflict, they lack any sense of coordination and forward progress. And so one of the number one things we do is um, having good relationships isn't about just liking one another, it's about how do we get coordinated here? How do we bring the right people together at the right time? And probably half your meetings should be uh, 30 minutes shorter and some of them should be much longer. Um, and most of us, our calendars uh, look the same as they kind of did two years ago, and we don't update, like, who are we talking to and when and why? So getting coordinated is one of the, the key thrusts. The other two big ones are uh, building commitment with your team and challenging your team. Uh, and this is where most leadership theories and leadership books and pro uh, programs really focus their energy on these two things. Building commitment is all about building commitment uh, mutual commitment with one another, uh, commitment to the organization and the cause, commitment to the leader, uh, and there's a, obviously a wide range of things that you as a leader can and should do. Uh, chief among those is how you show up as a leader. So this is where role modeling comes in and following through on commitments and getting things done as a leader uh, comes in and how you, how you set the stage to enable that team to create mutual commitment. And then the challenging piece is how do you challenge the team to be their very best? This is where motivation and inspiration comes in. This is where uh, you begin to push people beyond what they think they can do on their own and to see what's possible to do when you bring the collective talents together in, into a group. So getting coordinated, as Alan shared, and then working to help the team commit and challenging them, those three levers really seem to 
uh, be the big ones that, that form the relationships where one plus one equals five and you get that multiplier effect uh, in terms of results. So I mean, so many meetings that I have attended and I'm sure you, that you may have attended uh, simply are about status updates. Mm. Uh, can, can you suggest some ways that meetings can become more meaningful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, w- w- we believe in healthy conflict. We think that there needs to be, if you're not feeling slightly awkward or you know, you, if you can't feel uh, you, you, you leaning forward, um, then, then you're probably talking about the wrong things. Like this is not about process updates and, and, uh, and scheduling and the rest of it. This is about how do we cut to the thing where we fundamentally disagree, where reasonably smart people disagree. Let's talk about that. And you want to see drama. And, and if it's not memorable, then, then, then uh, you should probably shift the agenda. So what Atul Gwende, who we spoke about earlier, did, he actually threw, he blew up the status meeting, completely threw it out, and, and basically said to everyone, you have to submit a problem that we're going to solve. And this is going to be a problem-solving meeting rather than a status update. And at first, you know, people were very uncomfortable with that. Uh, over time, it has become electrifying for the team, I think, because now they're coming together to actually tackle real issues, solve real problems, not give each other status updates, which could be read on an email or shared in another format. How, how important is commitment to a team's success? And do you think it's inborn or can leaders create it? Mm. Go ahead, Alan, yeah. Yeah, so we, um, let me think. Um, we, we believe commitments really important. Uh, if, you, uh, if you don't feel like your colleagues have your back, then you're, you're really going to be um, floundering. Um, you know, we, we see the most committed teams have actually really gone through some pretty tough times. So they haven't just been out on a Sunday drive with the sun shining. They've actually you know, been to hell and back. Um, and as, like, as Winston Churchill said, like, if you're going through hell, keep going. And, uh, uh, and so um, we find the most committed teams have either had this incredible like crucible moment where they've learned to work together, but we also find other leaders, they try and accelerate that process and that discussion. And some of the best leaders we know, they say, at some point, this project, this team, it's going to suck. It's going to be terrible. Like, it's going to be all, we don't know what it's going to be. Now, when that happens, upon what can we rely on in each other? And, and having that conversation ahead of time, almost like rehearsing for the bad times, uh, can really make the difference. Two, two leaders coming to mind. One is uh, Caperton Flood, who is actually a former colleague of ours at uh, Bain and & Company. And he actually has that conversation up front when the case team comes together. What mutual commitments are we willing to make to each other as we do this project? Uh, and this is when people will say, well, you know what? I, I prefer not to work past 8 p.m. because I've got children and I want to be putting them to bed. Well, what happens if the client calls and there's an urgent matter? So they actually problem solve that before they even get into the real life scenario. So that's the rehearsing uh, that Alan was sharing. And they, they draft it up and sign this document. This is what we're committing to. So that's one version. Uh, another coming to mind is John Zilmer. Uh, John Zilmer uh, uh, at one point was in, in charge of a division of Aramark. And when he inherited it, his boss said, hey, you know, John is taking this on. He's going to be the caretaker of this business. And John thought, 
caretaker. I don't want to be a caretaker. <laughs> and it was a poorly performing business, and he didn't want to caretake this poorly performing business, so he took his team, his new team offsite, and basically shared all of the results from the past year, which weren't particularly good, and they said, all right, I want you to come back tomorrow at 8 a.m., and we're going to do something, and wear your gym shorts. And the leaders were thinking, gym shorts, uh-oh. They show up the next day in their gym shorts. A van takes them out to a Skip Barber racetrack. So this is kind of that classic team building. And they have a wonderful day racing cars together. And when they come back, John said, all right, looks like you can learn new tricks. So what I want to know is what are you willing to do as a team? What's possible here? And over the next few hours, this group of people actually began to challenge one another. And they came up with goals that were actually greater than what John had envisioned. And over the course of the year, he fostered it. So he said, all right, here's the deal. If we can accomplish these goals, we're going to come back next year. We're going to do the, we'll do the three-day racing course. So first quarter, they were making their numbers. John sent them racing gloves and a note that said congratulations. Second quarter, they're still making their numbers. He sends them the racing suit with their, their names on it. Third quarter, they're making their numbers. He sends them the, the helmet. And sure enough, they make it. They show up the next year, and they did this, this wonderful three-day program. And it was a, just a wonderful testament of how a leader almost manufactured commitment in a team that didn't have it by creating a shared experience and building on that shared experience that they took ownership of and ultimately delivered the results against. So let's, as a last question, try to put it all together because I think we could keep talking about this for a long time. Uh, if you look at all the three elements that you've talked about, the P, the W, and the R, how can leaders improve the power score of their teams? So what we're finding with our, a lot of our clients is they sit down and they have a conversation with their team and they said, what's our power score? To which the team said, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> uh, and, and then he explains it, said, okay, everyone get out a piece of paper, uh, get out a pen and now write down a number between 1 and 10 as the answer to these questions. To what extent do we have the right priorities? Do we have the right who, the right people in the right roles? And do the relationships work? And then they all held up their scores. And, and multiply them together. Multiply, yeah. multiply your three numbers together. All the scores are different and, it's, and, it, and it fosters a lot of curiosity and puzzlement and like, really? You scored it a 4, I scored it a 9. That's and then, and then it leads to the right discussion. And what our best clients do is they don't just have that as a one-off conversation. It becomes something they actually begin to track monthly or on a quarterly basis. Once you identify what's, what's... So the beauty of the power score, going back to the grand unified theory, is it does highlight where you have an issue. So if your overall power score is 432, uh, what are you going to do about it? Where are you weaker? Is it the priorities aren't clear? Is it that the who aren't right? Is it the relationships aren't working? It very quickly allows you as a leader and as a team, this is, by the way, a, a leader with his or her team exercise, not something you do in a vacuum. So the whole team can look at that and say, what do we need to do? How do we go from 432 to 500 to 600 to 700 and up? Uh, it becomes an enormously clarifying vehicle for identifying the issues and focusing in on those those issues that will drive the results. And the beauty of it is the research shows if you can drive the P, the W, and the R, you will get results. You'll be more successful than the average leader and the average team by orders of magnitude, and that's where the fun starts.
Well, that's a great note to end on. So, Randy, Alan, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.